0: Welcome to Vermont Artists and Authors, where we interview great storytellers and artists from the amazing Green Mountain State. This is episode 28. I'm your host, Barney Smith of storycomic.com, and we're excited to have with us the internationally and respected and award-winning Vermont author, Laura C. Stevenson. Laura, welcome. So you just recently had a new book come out called All Men Glad and Wise, correct? Yes.
1: Thank you for getting the title right. A lot of people say, All Men Good and Wise. No, 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 no. Uh, It's a hymn, okay? It's a 1919 hymn uh, that was first put into churches in 1919.
0: Okay. Now, so I know this is not your first book. You've put out a lot of books before this. And for those that are unfamiliar with some of your award-winning young adult books and some of your other books that you've had that take place in Vermont, can you give people a little bit of background how you started writing? Because I know you started writing when you were eight, correct?
1: Well, I started writing when I was eight. And then I wrote, somebody gave me a typewriter. My sister gave me a typewriter when I was 11. And I thought, oh, I'll write a novel. So I started in with a novel that was half uh, The Black Stallion and half Agatha Christie. And I got to about page 20 and I hadn't decided who done it yet. And so I quit. I didn't know that was classic that's what happens to novels there are thousands of people across the whole of america who have novels sitting in their drawers because it crashed and burned after the first 20 pages but i didn't know that then so i just stopped
0: right and and so you also we and you started writing your first novel came out in 1990 correct uh
1: 1980 uh, 1985. Um, it takes a while, you see, to write a novel.
0: <laughs>
1: and um, what had happened was that I'd been on a fancy fellowship, and I'd finished the academic book that had been my dissertation, and it had been accepted by a class A press, and all looked good, and then I went deaf. Mm -hmm. Um, I had been going deaf for some time, but all of a sudden, it got to be really deaf, not just an inconvenience. And um, so, I came to Vermont, to my family's house, old house, uh, with my 11-year-old daughter. And I no longer had a research library. So I had to make this stuff up, so I thought, well, I've always wanted to write novels. Why don't I give it a try? So I gave it a try. I wrote it for my daughter who had lived, decided she wanted to live with her father in California. So I wrote happily after all. Which is, that's the other one that gets the wrong title all the time. And they say happily ever after. No, 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 no. Happily <laughs> after all, the prince and the princess got married and they lived happily after all. All right. So, um, and then Meg said, Hey, you didn't write me a novel. So she made she had drawn up a map in of an island for her social studies class. And I said, oh, that island needs a history. So, I wrote one. And that was The Island in the Ring. By this time, the girls were quite a bit older than they had been when I started the novels. And so, I wrote two more novels for young adults. um, All the King's Horses and a Castle in the Window, which were both fantasies, and then they got into college and whatnot, and I wrote two semi-autobiographical novels set in Vermont. One of them was um, Return in Kind, and the other one was Liar from Vermont. And a few want to write an effective autobiographical novel, you've got to tear the heck out of yourself and go through what you went through when that novel was happening in real life. And so especially Liar from Vermont was very difficult. So when I finished that and it got published, I thought, I'm going to write something really frivolous and it's going to be fun. And that's all men, glad and wise. And it was fun. It was a blast to write. I have such a good time. So. So my,
0: my, my question, this book takes place uh, after the great war, 1919 in England. So why what made you decide that setting well it's an
1: agatha christie novel right i looked her up the other day do you know that her novels collectively sold more than two billion copies and were translated into every single language i mean you know the lady was amazing right. okay so i used her country house Country House Mystery, okay? Um, But, uh, of course, everybody else who has written the Country House Mystery, you gotta add your own twist or it turns out to be derivative and you don't want that. Okay, so my twist was writing it from the point of view of the stable lad. And that did something interesting that I hadn't really expected. the historian in me kicked in, um, and I started looking into what country houses actually were in 1919, and a wonderful book came out called The British Stable, which is all about the architecture of stables. And these aristocrats and gentry, who, by the way, owned 56% of England, Okay, just is a total, right? And they had money and they could pay the best architects of their times. And so those architects, the big, big names, designed stables and they are just spectacular. They are wonderful. And so all of a sudden, the stable boy who had just been going to be a voice got to be the son of the head groom of this fantastic stable with perfect architecture and a fountain and a clock Um, and everybody sort of accepts harry green that's his name as the next head groom and the head groom of a 20-horse stable in a big family And the horse, the stable is famous, okay? That's a pretty good position. Only there's a catch. Harry's a girl, okay? And girls couldn't do dressage, which was what Harry was brought up doing. She was raised as a boy, absolutely completely. She went to school. She's got a great rugby tackle. Um, she's good at all these things. She's good at math. So, um, all of a sudden she realizes after she's found the steward murdered in the dell, And she gets talked to by the police and Sir Thomas. And she realizes, oh my gosh, the estate's going bankrupt and what's going to happen to us? Because her father is 55 and he's famous all through England as a great groom, but there are no more horses. I mean, there are horses, but by 1930, there really were no more horses, okay? So she sees this coming. And what's going to happen to her? Because a girl of her status, who is not a boy who is going to inherit the farm, mm-hmm. uh has no place in society except to become a parlor maid, a scullery maid, that's a couple of cuts lower, um, a ladies maid, that's a couple of cuts higher, but that's as high as you can go. And she has mm-hmm. No skills. She doesn't know how to wear a skirt, let alone how to help somebody else put one on. And so she's totally stuck. And her father can't explain to Sir Thomas that, um, excuse me, Sir Thomas, but my son is actually a girl and I've been fooling you for 14 years. Is not going to go over very well. So she decides, when she realizes how bad things are, is that she is going to figure out who murdered the steward in the dell. She hated him, by the way. Everybody on the estate hated him. There are hundreds of people who were just delighted to see him. Well, sorry, he was murdered and all, but they had wished he was dead every other day. So, um, you know, so nobody is sad about it, but they don't like having a murderer in their midst. So, Harry, who still thinks of herself as a boy, goes for it. And of course, this is an Agatha Christie murder mystery, so you already know that she's going to find it out. So why keep reading? <laughs> That's always the question. That's your challenge. Um, so um, you have to make your characters alive. They have to be nice. Um, and I, I admit, I have a weak spot for Harry. Harry is a good narrator. Occasionally, oh, did you read it? Harry is occasionally, uh, awfully proud of herself and very sensitive and very smart. Basically, she's a 14 year old who has worked every day of her life um, under her father, who she calls Sir. And as a dressage rider, and dressage is the most disciplined of the writing arts, it's like ballet. Okay, mm. you don't mess around; you do everything right every time. Well, um, yeah.
0: so you have you have a degree in history, correct? That's right. So i I'm, I'm curious. I'm curious about when it comes to writing a historical novel, a, a mystery. How much creative licensing do you give yourself to tweak historical accuracies in order to fit within the story you're trying to tell?
1: In this particular case, um, I did as little tweaking as I could. Um, And it was fairly easy. The book, starts five months after armistice. And Hugh Tandes Willingford, right? The son of Sir Thomas has been killed in the war, along with all the boys uh, and young men that she kind of grew up with. She's younger, but she grew up with all these guys and they all followed Hugh to the front and they were all wiped out. The whole regiment was wiped out at Passchendaele. End of story, okay? Mm -hmm. And the whole farm is, is, you know, it's 2000 acres and everybody that age is dead. So there's a tremendous loss, that's number one. That's easy enough to portray. The other thing is what's happening to grooms when all of a sudden, in the last 15, 20 years, automobiles have been taking the places of horses. And everybody in the aristocracy and gentry is getting rid of their horses, and it was made easier because they were all taken across across the channel to fight in the war, and as, as Harry puts it, None of them ever came back to us. Okay, so 20 horses went home and none came back. So now there are five leftovers. All right, so that's easy enough. And the third thing is uh, a seismic change in land ownership that happened between 1880 and 19. 25, 30. Um, as I said, the aristocracy and gentry had personally owned 56% of England. Okay, that's 1880. 1930, the aristocracy and gentry owned
0: 10% of England.
1: So, it was the biggest transfer of land ownership since the Norman conquest, okay, William the Conqueror. All right. And then in the 16th century, Henry VIII dissolved the monasteries, which means he took over all the monastic lands. And that was about a third of English land. Okay, So he took it back to the crown and then he sold it off. Um, and so this is the third huge transfer, and it's now visible. It wasn't so visible before because there weren't cars and there weren't roads and there weren't. But it's now um, industrial England is now started getting with us in you know the 30s and 40s and finally. Okay. And I'm somewhat interested in Well, I'm interested in it as an historian, and there are wonderful books written about it, okay? Right. Um, but I'm also interested because when I was five, my father bought the place that I'm living in now, okay? 115 acres and a house. The house did not look like much, but it was there. Okay. Okay, five thousand dollars. keep your heart out. Okay. Um. And there were four houses on our road. There are now twenty-two. Um, our land was divided in half. My neighbors down the road um, still has one hundred and seventy-five acres, but the big farm down the way. This is a liar from Vermont, my autobiographical novel. Okay. Um, that was, I think, 600 acres, and it's been divided up into 10 acre parcels and very nice houses and very nice neighbors, but it's not a farm anymore.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So, and that's what's happened all across Vermont.
0: So, I'm curious about. Is this the first time you've written a book that is for you? Because you brought up earlier, you were writing these other books based off of the ages of your children. And I'm curious if this is the first time you've written a book that you wanted to write for yourself.
1: No, actually um, it's the third. uh, The one about the first one about Vermont was about dividing up our family property and how much that hurt. Uh, And and the Mm -hmm. heroine of that novel uh, is in the midst of going deaf. So, okay, that one was for me. Mm -hmm. And then having done that, I thought, okay, I'll do a a pre-deaf childhood um, growing up in Vermont in the 50s so that one in and 50s
0: and 60s it starts in 51 It ends in 64 okay and do you have are you are you going to go back to do any new young adult novels or was that mostly because you're have you, now that your children are older now that you don't think you'll write those again
1: well i have grandchildren <laughs> okay but um one of them wants to be a novelist. We'll see. There's hope. But I think not. Because the whole market for young adult fiction has changed so much since I started naively pounding out on a typewriter. Uh, a novel for my kids. that was in the 80s. Okay. No computer. Um, and so... I really don't know what I'm going to write less. There have been some questions about, am I going to write a sequel? I don't know. I might, on the other hand, then I would have to do all sorts of things. There's some interesting research that could be done. Mm-hmm. But know I may write something completely different. I never know until I sit down and write the first 20 pages and watch it crash and burn. And then you decide, oh, well, maybe not this one. Or, okay, let's go back, outline. um, Actually, I don't outline. I go back and I make up a history for each character with the dates. Okay, in such and such a year, this person graduated from college. Okay, so then I got them lined up And gradually, as I work that out, the plot starts to emerge. That's on a good day. Um, And then I start putting things together. And then when I really can't help it any longer, I sort of write an outline, but I never made it all the way through the outline the way I started it, because how dull. If you know how it's going to, if you know how it's going to end, why finish it? Why not? Why not write along and find out? Oh, hey, that's cool. Let's do that. Of course, there's a, there's a drawback to that. Um, you find out you've gone off on a huge tangent and none of it's useful. And you spend all this time on it and you actually did research and then you're going to throw it out. So that's, you know, that's writing biz.
0: So do you ever have your characters surprise you then as you're writing that they go in a different direction that you were not planning?
1: Oh, absolutely. They keep me under control very well. <laughs> yeah, Harry, for example. Oh, I had all sorts of plans for Harry. Uh, but Harry stubbornly decided she was going to solve this mystery and she was going to do it her way. And it was not the way anybody else was going to do it. So I followed along.
0: And I also, I'm also curious about your, your reviews that you do. Would you consider that as a point of advice for other people who are thinking about writing their own books to review other books that they've read?
1: Not at the beginning.
0: Okay.
1: Um, and actually, it's depending on what's going on in their lives. Supposing you were a 25, 30-year-old writer and you got one baby on each hip and this happened to me, right? Um. And you don't have all that much spare time, the last thing you should be doing is writing reviews. You should be writing your own stuff. And if you can't do that, and your time comes in 15 minute intervals, if you have two kids and diapers, okay? You should do exercises. There's a book by John Gardner, It's really old. He was a famous writer in the 80s and it's called The Art of Fiction. And it has exercises in the back. Draw a landscape as drawn by, as seen by a bird. Uh, Write a dialogue in which the two characters are lying to each other. Um, okay, he has a whole bunch of them. Write the opening of a short story. Write the opening of a novel. What's the difference? So he makes sure you do these things, and I found them. Boy, was it helpful! Mm-hmm. And I started writing. And then when I was at Marlboro College, I started giving a course. Marlboro had a writing requirement. And in your first two years, you couldn't pass in 20 pages of reasonable prose. Pretty good spelling, punctuation, okay? But basically good prose, then you couldn't stay. So my job was to keep them there. Mm. And I gave a course that was called Elements of Style. And basically it was a grammar course. And I took leaves out of Gardner's book. And I said, look, here are your exercises, right? Write me ten subject, verb, direct object sentences and push the meaning through them. All right. Next, write 10 subject, verb, indirect object, direct object sentences, and push the meaning through them. You don't have to say anything, but you do have to have them be sort of sequential and you can't use any other words. Um, And of course there were screams of horror. Um, And the course, over the course of 20 years, the course became so popular that I had to give it every semester. So um, I think, and then I still get letters saying, hey, you know, thank you, I can write. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And and they can, because what that does is put the emphasis on the words that count. subject, verb, direct object. Get those stupid prepositional phrases out of there. Let's not put in too many adjectives and adverbs. And I can tell when there's writers, especially when I'm writing views of beginning novelists, Right? some of them don't know that. I probably notice more than most people. Okay, Um, because they have wonderful imaginations, they have great ideas, but it's the writing is not really solid. So, and that's what's keeping them. If they've gotten that far, um, that's that's pretty good. But most of them end up in the slush pile. I read slush piles for a while uh, for uh, Random House. And in those days you got, it was all in paper, right? And I'd get this novel and so I'd read it and I'd send it back with some comments and they said, no, 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 you're not reading fast enough. You're supposed to read three better than that four 200 page novels an hour. Wow. And give us yes or no. All I got so I could do seven, eight, just from the prose of those early sentences. And I I was kind, I'm a teacher, okay? Um, So I would not just read the first 10 pages, I would turn to the middle because your novel tends to get better in the middle, unless it sags, okay? And then I would read the last 15 pages. If the prose didn't get better, it was no. It did get better than that was sad because I wasn't allowed to tell them that all I was allowed to say was yes and no.
0: So, so Laura, we have writers and authors that like, like to listen to the show. And for those that probably have their first manuscript available, what would be your advice to them if they say, how do I know I have a good book or not?
1: Give it to somebody else. Not. Your grandmother, not your husband or wife. No, no, no. Possibly your kids. My kids are all great critics, fantastic. Mommy, you can't say that. Uh, That's too long. A lot of people go to writing groups and that's helpful uh, if it's a good writing group. Some people go to MFA programs about which I have mixed feelings Um, I used to tell my students, all right, in the 80s, I said, you know, it's not the best idea in the world, but there are some very good programs. Well, then, universities found it was a great way to make money. And so there are hundreds of them. Um, And some of them are very good, and some of them aren't. Um, And some of them are very helpful. So there's some good programs out there. I find I can tell when I'm reviewing a novel without having read the stuff at the beginning and the end. Okay, that would be cheating. Um, Just having read the novel, I can tell whether they've come out of an MFA program or not. It's hard to put your fingers on exactly what what I'm seeing. But They're always just a little bit too audience conscience. And um, there's stuff that is nastily called MFA prose. I can see somebody is going to skewer me having heard it. (laughs) Uh, But there is. And I find um, a lot of people who publish at Rootstock or unpublished uh, tend to be my age or not a whole lot younger. And they've had a life and a career and maybe they have retirement, they have time to write. Um, Their prose tends to be better and more approachable. It's not schooled. They've developed their own style. Now, this is not always true. And a lot of them have gone to writing groups. Okay. People do send me manuscripts. Um, I discourage that. (laughs) Well, I don't, if there are people that I know, I do read their manuscripts. What I almost always say is think in terms of 250 pages. If it is longer than 250 pages, Send me the first 25 pages and I will tell you whether it's worth working on. And of course, I say yes. Okay. But please don't send me 500 pages because no novel, unless you're really super, super good. Okay. <laughs> You don't need to write a 500-page novel. You can probably get the whole thing squeezed into 300. And if you can't, um, well, you might think of cutting it a little bit. (laughs) Oh, people scream. um, And then I tell them, well, I throw out 10 pages for every one I keep. Easily, sometimes on a bad day it's 20, and then I say, you know, I think I'll go for a walk. And I'm now reviewing novels uh, for the Historical Novel Society, and some of those are self-published or Amazon published. Um, and I'm reading two now that are both but quite good, but work on it they're 650 pages long <laughs> and they don't have 650 pages to say. Okay, so that's cruel, I've had it said to me. <laughs> um, but that is the first thing I generally said to students who, who came in with these great tones their freshman year at Marlborough. Look at my novel. Is it ready to go? No, (laughs) not yet. But but, you know, we we can work on this. The other thing to do is when it's too long, and why don't you start a new one? Maybe your second novel. Mm -hmm. Almost nobody publishes their first novel. Mm -hmm. It's generally kept in a drawer. Um, and love and in some scene and, and cannibalized, you can actually feed little bits of your first novel to your second and third, um, but I think I was brought up as, as a historian and the first thing they told us in the first week of classes and we were all looking at each other and saying, oh my God, what are we doing here? The first thing was the profession writes too much. And our first papers in one class, you were not allowed to write more than three pages. And you had to do research that took about a week of solid work. All right, and then you had to write that up in three pages with footnotes at the bottom of the page. Okay, so I was trained on squashing it.
0: <laughs> so, is there a genre that you're not a big fan of? Is there a genre of literature that you not you? No. you, you yeah.
1: When I was really broke, when I first moved to Vermont, I thought, well, maybe I could write a Harlequin romance because you get, I forget how much it was then, I think it was $5,000, and you sell the copyright. And I thought, well, I can bang this thing out, and I'll get $5,000, and we can live off that while I write the next one. Right, so... I started, and about page 20, he kissed the pulsating hollow of her collarbone, and I threw up. And that was <laughs> up. <laughs> So there is that, and there's historical bodice rippers. Eh, my sister really likes those. Mm-hmm. I've never been able to get through one without giggling. <laughs> um, so um, the person who can pull it off is Stephanie Barron, B-A-R-R-O-N, who wrote The Jane Austen Mysteries. And they're very good. And boy, she know her, Jane Austen. But there are passages in those that when you know them. Stephanie cool it, cool it This is becoming a bodice ripper. She stops herself. But that's the way she wants to go. Anyway, but she's very good.
0: So when you mentioned editing, taking our taking out parts of books, was there anything in all men glad and wise that you had from a previous book? Or is there anything in there that you took out that you want to put into a future book? Anything that
1: I took out? No, I think I think most of it had to go. All right. <laughs> all right. Um, there are stuff, you know, if I get around to writing a sequel, um, there's stuff that could happen. Um, but I don't want to, um, I don't want to do a spoiler, but there's stuff in all men gladden that would come out in the next book but I just it's there's a hint but I'll you'll have to find out what it is <laughs> um, but um one thing that happened it would have to be set later uh like maybe five or six years later when she's graduated from school and all that stuff um and I wanted to get into eugenics Um, and what was happening with eugenics. And um, it even has a title, uh, Let All Mortal Flesh Keep Silence. It's another hymn. Mm -hmm. Um, But the flesh has different ideas coming with it. But eugenics uh, would be a major part of the plot. And it starts with horse breeding and then it crosses over into people.
0: If people want to get your books, where's the best place they can go to find your books? Oh, it's
1: Bartleby's bookstore in Wilmington.
0: Okay. You
1: have it's. I think it's my Vermont bookstore. Um, dot com, and they can get it. Of course, they can get it from Amazon, but let me tell you a little story about Amazon. Before the book was published, three or four people had gotten ARCs and written nice reviews on Amazon. I looked them up the other day because somebody had written me a new one and the three or four earlier reviews had disappeared. So I wrote to Samantha, and I said, hey, is there anything I can do about this? She said, no. Amazon has deleted all the reviews of books by people who did not buy the book from Amazon. Oh. Yes, and that's because what was happening was all these writers were doing what I was also what you do, you know, you buy it from PartleBase and you write a review on Amazon. And if you have an Amazon account, that used to be okay. No more. No more. Mm. Uh, I think that's because, well, everybody I know is boycotting Amazon because of the union stuff, okay? Um, And then, okay, so Amazon is said obviously, thinking, well, Don't buy from us, you can't advertise with us. And frankly, that's hard to argue with. I mean, I'm not big friends at all. But still, you know, you used to be able to do that. And there are people now publishing with Amazon, and you look at these books, and they have 55 star reviews. And if you get 55 star reviews, or even 50, three-star reviews, Um, they boost you, and it's easier to get at at your books. Mm -hmm. So what they used to think of as providing a service has now become an an advertisement, and so, yeah. So buy it from Bartleby's, Uh, what's it? Bear Pond Bookstore? Bartleby's Books, that's it. Yeah. Yes and they have yeah and they mail it that's right vermont titles they have special vermont titles and there i am right perfect so go on to their website and um they send you the book right. they do not they don't give you a discount and um you don't get free you don't get free uh, mailing, but um, at least, well, I'm a local. But I think if you buy, I forget how many dollars worth of books it is from them, um, the next book is free.
0: Oh, cool!
1: Well, maybe not free, but I forget exactly how it works. But every once in a while, I find, hey, here's a book. <laughs>
0: Perfect. Well, yes,
1: yes, they do. Um, they have a particularly um, liar from Vermont.
0: They would have.
1: Uh, they have. Oh, that's interesting. They don't have liar from Vermont. Okay, I'll take this up with them. Um, <laughs> Return and kind is the one about the woman going deaf. That's funny. I thought they had a from Vermont. All right. I'll
0: go down there tomorrow. And then, and also, people can go to lauracstevenson.org to see all of your books. They can see your reviews there. Uh, they can be able to see all things Laura C. Stevenson on that website yes as i say this was a great book it's a it was a great read and it's been a genuine pleasure talking to you all right thank you very much laura